The scripture reading this morning is taken from Jonah, chapter 1, verses 4 through 17. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you, that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, you may have a seat. I'm Joey, one of the pastors here. I want to say good morning to all of you that are with us this morning, and especially to those of you who are watching online later or catching this on the podcast on your way to work in the morning. Uh, Thanks for joining us. Uh, We are in this story of Jonah for six weeks, talking about Jonah, the very worst missionary. And we're talking in this sermon series about how sometimes it's religious people who make the worst missionaries. Sometimes it's us religious people uh, who are the worst at telling people about Jesus. Because when you've been following Jesus for a while, there's this temptation. Uh, Instead of looking ahead to where Jesus is and seeing how much you still get to grow to become like him, uh, we can turn and look backwards at how far we've come. And especially at the people who are farther behind us. And say, why haven't you gotten up here to this point where I am? Why aren't you up to this spiritually mature status, this uprightness, this righteousness where, where I am right now? What are you doing all the way back there? Try harder. And we start to think that, uh, well, we don't admit it to ourselves, but we can begin to think that it's our commitment to Jesus that has brought us so far. Not his work, but our own work uh, that has made us what we are and condemn those behind us on this path, on this journey for their own lack of commitment, their lack of righteousness. Sometimes religious people can make the very worst missionaries because we start to think we're the only ones good enough to hear the message that we've been called to share. 
That's what's happening to Jonah as we pick up the story in Jonah chapter 1. He's called to be a missionary to a pagan nation, uh, but he wouldn't go. In his mind, the message of the grace of God is a beautiful message, but it is not for wicked pagans like the Ninevites, like the Assyrians. They don't deserve God's love. That's where we pick up the story in Jonah chapter 1. We've got this prophet of Israel, a staunchly religious, pro-Israel, anti-Assyria, aggressively pro-military religious fundamentalist who's been told to go to Israel's enemies and tell them the good news of a God who will forgive, who will withhold judgments if they repent to Nineveh, Israel's most feared and most hated enemy, which if you are here last week, we said Proclaiming judgment on Nineveh sounds like a great message if you can send it in a letter, if you don't have to go yourself, right? But Jonah's been called to go himself to Israel's mortal enemy, and he's thinking to himself, well, why would I go preach repentance to them and the forestalling of judgment? That would only give them an opportunity to regather their strength and oppress Israel again. So for the good of Israel, for the good of his people, for the good of his nation, he runs from God. He runs away. That's where we pick it up in Jonah chapter 1 as we're moving into Act 1, scene 2 of the book of Jonah. And as we go through Act 1, scene 2, which is verses 4 through 17, 4 through the end of the chapter, there are kind of three main story beats, three movements in this story. Jonah's storm, Jonah's sloth, and ultimately Jonah's sacrifice. Uh, Three main beats to this story, Jonah's storm, Jonah's sloth, and Jonah's sacrifice. But in each of these story beats, there is hidden inside the message of mercy. The mercy of God, which extends even to the very worst missionaries. Even to guys like Jonah. Even to people like you and me. Let's start with Jonah's storm, verse 4. But the Lord hurled, it's a, it's a violent word, like a javelin, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest, a great tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea uh, to lighten it for them. And immediately, you know, it starts out with this word, but there's a, an immediate contrast from the previous verses. Jonah is trying to get away from the presence of the Lord, but God hurls a wind after him. You can see Jonah fleeing, and it's almost like God is just chucking this wind after him as he goes, and it churns up this great storm, churns up the waves. See, Jonah had been called to go to Nineveh, a great city. But since he won't go to a great city, he ends up in the midst of a great storm. Which is actually, I think, how the world works. This week, I got a big package, a big box from Amazon, and inside of it was a battery backup sump pump system for my basement. And and this this particular system, I open it up, and there's like a hundred parts. And normally, I'm the kind of guy who opens up something like this, or opens up you know something that you get to assemble, that you get to construct. And I kind of glance at the uh, instructions and then toss them off to the side, and be like, I can figure this out. I can put this thing together. But with this you know battery backup for a sump pump, I really want it to work. So I'm not going to take any risks and just sort of start bolting pieces together because it looks right. 
So I pull out the instructions and I'm paging through them one at a time. What are the tools that I need? What are the steps that I have to go through? How do I make this thing work? Because when it really comes down to it, I need it to work. I, I need it to work exactly. If it doesn't, then my basement floods again. And I don't want that to happen. Uh, sin works in kind of the same way. Sin, one of the ways to look at it, is, is taking the machinery of, of your life or the machinery of God's world and saying, you know, I'm just going to put this together, whatever looks right. I'm just going to put different pieces, I'll bolt this to this and try this over here, and I don't know, that looks sort of right, and maybe I'll make this work out. And, and, it, and it's, taking, uh, it's taking what God has designed to do one thing and say, I, I'm going to see if maybe I can't make it to do something else. Or maybe I want it to do that, but I'm going to do it in my own way. And when you go against the grain of the machinery, when you go against the grain of the universe like that, there's always going to be breakdown. It will always break down. If I take my sump pump and just start slapping pieces together so that it looks right, it will break down and not work when I need it to. It's the same thing in our lives and in God's world. If we take it and slap it together whichever way we think seems right, it's going to break down. And when it breaks down, a storm comes along with it. There's one author who says that sin is the suicidal action of the will against itself. Sin is purposely building the machine in a way that it cannot function and will not run. Sin is self-sabotage, and self-sabotage always comes with a storm. Now, that doesn't mean, so because sin always has a storm accompanying it, that doesn't mean that all storms are a result of sin, but it does mean that any time there is sin, there is selfishness or disorder or dysfunction in our lives, there will be a storm that comes along with it. There will be a storm that accompanies it. Now, it's not usually a physical storm, right? In Jonah's case, there's an actual physical storm that God sends as a result of his disobedience, his running away. For us, it's usually more like the effects of eating poorly and never exercising, never moving, right? It just slowly starts to build on you until the entirety of your life is characterized by the effects of these self-indulgent decisions. Sort of a slow rolling storm, I guess, that just keeps dumping right on top of you. In Jonah's case, it's a physical storm. In our case, it's usually something a little slower, a little less obvious. But in Jonah's story, of course, the storm doesn't affect just him. There's innocent bystanders, there's sailors that are caught up in this tempest, which unfortunately is also how the world works when it comes to the storms created by sin. Often other people are caught up in the storm that our sin causes, or we're caught up in the storms that other people's sin causes. Many of the things that happen to us aren't a result of our own sin or our own pride, or wrath, or envy, or lust, or greed. They're the result of someone else's pride. Someone else's sin, or envy, or wrath, or lust, or greed, or whatever. We, and I know most of us, have become collateral damage in someone else's sin storm as it ravages their life and in turn affects our own. 
sin always brings with it a storm, some sort of destruction. This is the way the world works. So how do we respond when sin storms ravage over us, when difficulties come into our lives because of our own sinfulness or the sinfulness of someone else or even just the fact that the world we live in is broken by sin? How do we respond? We actually do, I think, just what the sailors do, which is take every practical measure we can and appeal to whatever authority we can find that's higher than us, that's outside of us, who can maybe uh, alleviate the problem or take care of it for us. See what they do, verse 5, the mariners were afraid, and there's something about this storm that they recognized. They were spiritually sensitive enough to recognize there's a supernatural element to this storm. It's not just about, it's not just a regular storm. Uh, But they, they were afraid, each cried out to his God, appealed to some authority outside of themselves to say, fix this for me whether it was the God of the heavens or the God of the sea or the God of their particular profession, they all appealed to someone and then hurled the cargo. There's that same word again. They hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea in order to lighten overall, lighten the weight of the ship so it wouldn't be swamped by the waves crashing over it. They did everything practically and everything spiritually that they could do to alleviate this sin storm. They cry out to their gods, they throw their cargo overboard, and it's only once they've exhausted all of their skills, every practical and every spiritual step they can take, uh, that they stop to try to discover why they're in this dangerous situation. How do we respond when sin storms threaten to swamp us? The first way we respond, I think it takes a little bit of uh, spiritual sensitivity Where is this coming from? Why is this coming? Now, it's possible to be too sensitive and see in every difficulty, in every storm, uh, evidence of someone else's sin at work. But we have to be at least honest and a little bit sensitive here to say, you know, sometimes the things that happen to us are a result of our own selfishness, our own self-indulgence, our own sinfulness. And of course, when that happens, then we repent, we turn back to God, we step away from that activity or that attitude, we we try to cease it with the help of the spirit and the community that God has placed us in. But if the sin is is the result of someone, or the storm is a result of someone else's sin, well, then what do we do? It's tempting to say that the response, the immediate response should be uh, we condemn the person and throw them overboard. Actually, though ultimately that's what the sailors do, it takes them quite a while before they get to that point. Now, what we actually do when someone else's sin storms are ravaging us and ravaging them is we come close enough to that person to absorb some of the storm, to be a storm taker on their behalf, to to soak some of it up ourselves in order to give just a little bit of relief to them and tell them about the one who ultimately can take all of their storms and all of their sin. Then thirdly, if the effects of sin that we're seeing in the world are just because the world is broken, that's the way the world is that we live in, then we cry out to God and we say, God, how long? How long will you let this storm beat upon us? How long until you're in 
until your justice rolls down like a river, until it swamps over the injustice in the world around us, until uh, your, your compassion washes away the sorrow that is transferred from person to person, from generation to generation. The brokenness that affects our societies will be healed, repaired, made new, washed clean by the justice of God. We, we pray, Lord, how long before you come and make it right? There are practical things we can do, including our own repentance, coming close to and absorbing the storms in the other people, but there are also spiritual things we do depending on the ultimate and final justice of God to bring uh, full healing to everything that the storms of sin in our lives have touched. If we have those eyes of faith that can see in the storm God's mercy, Jonah can only see God's judgment. See, Scripture doesn't teach that all storms come from sin. But it does teach that all sin leads to a storm. So wherever the storm comes from, wherever the difficulty comes from, we know God can use it to work in us things that he could not do otherwise, to work in us humility and hope and faith and confidence in God, patience and perseverance, that we, muscles we wouldn't be able to exercise unless we were trying to stand up in the midst of a storm. God will use the difficulties to form us like that. We know that as believers, as Christians. Jonah saw in this storm God's judgment and couldn't see deep inside the storm God's mercy, calling his heart back to him, stripping away everything else of value that Jonah held on to until all that was left was Jonah face to face with God. So it, it makes me wonder and ask the question of you and of myself, can I see God's mercy deep in the storms that are in my life? Can I see God's mercy stripping away the things that I'm relying on until all that's left is him and I face to face? It's mercy for even the very worst missionaries to call our hearts back to God. That's Jonah's storm. Next is Jonah's sloth. Jonah can't see God in the midst of the storm, or he can't, he can't see God's mercy. He can only see God's judgment, so he retreats into sloth. Look at verse 5. Right, so the mariners are up on deck, crying out to their gods, hurling the cargo into the sea. But Jonah had gone down, again, downward movement. He had gone down into the inner parts of the ship, the bowels of the ship, the deepest cargo hold, and had lain down and was fast asleep. And there's some interesting stuff going on here with Hebrew verbs and time and things like that that different translations translate differently. The ESV leaves it nicely ambiguous, which I like, because the implication there is the storm comes up, and as the mariners begin crying out to their God and, and trying to figure out what, is, what they can toss overboard to lighten the load, Jonah is just retreating. He sees the storm and the wrath of God in the storm and continues down away from the presence of God, as far away from the storm as he can get, and there falls into sleep or lethargy or some sort of trance. 
it's easy to see that in Jonah's actions because it's easy to see that in my own actions. You know when you've done something wrong and you know the consequences are coming and you know the consequences are going to be worse if you do nothing, but you can't stand what the consequences are going to be if you just face it and so instead you just sort of check out of reality for a little while, like try to run and avoid it or go somewhere or do something or just try to step back from from what's happening and just pretend that none of it's ever, none of it's happening, you stick your head in the sand like an ostrich. Jonah is wrestling with these profound feelings and emotions of anxiety and fear and anger and guilt and grief over what he's done and this mix of emotions going on inside of his heart, inside of his soul that you could almost say are storming inside of him, uh, leads him to retreat, to, to pull away from people to pull away from God, to go down as far away as he can get, and there essentially curl up into a ball and go as small and as inwardly focused as it's possible to be. And he ends up asleep. He ends up numb to the world. Because he can't. He can't face the call of God in the wind and in the waves. So he retreats, passes out, denies the reality of his situation, goes totally inward. And I, I think of this beat in the story as Jonah's sloth because this is a, a classic picture of the vice of sloth. Sloth is not just laziness, like n- never getting out of bed or numbing yourself out on binge-watching Netflix or, or, or drugs or alcohol or something like that. Sloth isn't just laziness. It's a state of disgust with reality, uh, uh, kind of an existential loathing for the way the world is. Why do you have me here, God? Sloth happens when we resist the demands of relationships that we're in. You know, every relationship you're in comes with expectations, whether it's relationship with a spouse, uh, with a parent or a child, a coworker, a boss, your employer, the company you work for, a pet, even possessions, the things that you have, you are in a relationship with those things, and that relationship always comes with expectations. And if you don't meet those expectations, the relationship breaks down. I needed a new sump pump because I didn't maintain the old one. And when I finally got around to it and pulled four socks out of the impeller, I'd broken the relationship with the sump pump. I hadn't lived up to the expectations. I hadn't lived up to the relational demands that I and this thing have. Now, that's a a thing, a machine. You can easily replace it with a couple of hundred bucks and some, some work. But the same is true of our relationships with one another and with God. Sloth is any time we feel called to step up to the demands of a relationship, but we back away. Sometimes we back away by numbing out, like we just don't get off the couch even though the chickens need food and water. We just sit back because we resent the fact that they exist at this particular moment and, you know, need us. 
or we back away, we pull away from those relationships by getting really busy somewhere else. Every time we schedule things in our calendars for a certain time in order to avoid other commitments, that's sloth. We're retreating, we're, we're pulling back from the demands of relationships that we're in. Every time, every time we stay late at work because it's easier to stay at work than it is to go home and be with our spouse and kids. That's sloth. We're pulling back from the demands of the relationship, the relationships that we're in. Every time that we, every time that we just sort of say, you know what, I'm, I'm just, I'm done. I got nothing more. Even though we know, in fact, we do, we just don't want to give anymore. That's sloth. It's saying, I can see what this relationship is calling me to, and I'm backing away from it. For Jonah, uh, the demands of the relationship with the covenant God of Israel were clear, especially because he, in his position as a prophet, a messenger, someone who takes the message of God to whomever God sends him, the call, the demands on the relationship were clear. Here's the message. Take it there. What's Jonah supposed to do? Take the message and go there. But instead, he, he backs away. He, he runs away. He resists the demands of the relationship that he has with God. He resists, in a sense, the greatness to which God calls him and says, no, 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 no. I, I'd rather just be, I'd rather be a regional prophet. I don't want to be an international prophet, God. Don't call me to that. I want to be a regional prophet. I, 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 you know, this is enough. This is enough, God. You don't have to call me to anything bigger than this. There's other things going on, of course, Jonah's own uh, nationalism, but uh, he's actively running away from God in the first scene, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, and then he's actively numbing out in the second scene, pulling back from God. And the sailors, interestingly, will have nothing to do with it. Look, the captain of the ship, verse 6 uh, goes down into the hold. It comes to him and says to him, what, do you mean? what are you doing, sleeper? What do you mean, you sleeper? What do you mean by this, continuing to sleep while we are all fighting for our lives up here, praying for our lives up here? What do you mean by this, falling asleep? Arise, call out to your God. And as Jonah is wiping the sleep from his eyes, he hears the very words of God coming out of the mouth of a pagan sailor. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out to them. And he's half awake, and the sailor's going, Arise, call out. Call out to your God. Perhaps the God, your God, whatever God it is you worship, perhaps your God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Now, he already knows, we're clued in a little bit later, he already knows that Jonah is running away from his God his regional God, his tribal God, his geographically bounded God. So this is like a last-ditch effort. Yet your God's back there in Jerusalem, but call out to him anyway. Maybe he can help us. Maybe he can reach us. We've done everything spiritually we can do. We've done everything physically we can do. We know this is some supernatural event that's happening here. Do something and help us and call out to your God. It's, 
it's really profound irony that's going on here. Jonah ran away so he wouldn't have to talk to pagans about God. And now he wakes up to find a pagan talking to him about God. It's, it's irony. Uh, God had sent Jonah to point the pagans to himself, and now the pagans are pointing Jonah back to God. The irony just keeps piling up. Jonah fled because he didn't want to work for the good of the pagans. And now the pagans are saying, Jonah, get on up here and work for our good and yours as well. It's irony and it's mercy. Deep within this storm, in the voice of a pagan sailor, within Jonah's own spiritual despair, God reaches out to him and calls to him through the mouthpiece of a pagan, polytheistic, Phoenician sailor. He says, Jonah, get up. Call out to your God. And Jonah stands silent. Even though God's mercy reaches even to the very worst missionaries, guys like Jonah and us, Jonah stands silent. He's got nothing to say. That's Jonah's sloth. His sin, his disobedience, his running from God first resulted in this storm hurled after him, and then he numbs out in sloth and retreat from the demands of his relationship with God and his relationship to these other sailors, not willing to work for their good either. He numbs out in the the bowels of the ship. Uh, Now we come to Jonah's sacrifice. These sailors know something's going on, and they have exhausted all of their options, except one, which was a fairly common ancient Near East practice to uh, sort of divine the will of the gods. They cast lots. Now, at this point in the narrative, Jonah has done nothing except place himself back into the relative proximity of the other sailors. Doesn't appear that he's helping in any way. He's not speaking at all yet. It doesn't appear that he's praying in any way. He's certainly not repenting. He's not turning back to God. He's not admitting to anything until they cast lots. Now, however they did that, we don't know. Maybe they wrote sailors' names on sticks and then drew one, or they, uh, each sailor picked a pebble and that represented them, and they shook them out, whichever one fell out first. Whatever they did, the lot fell on Jonah. Whatever they did to actually cast lots, God used it to point the finger, point the blame, point the accountability to Jonah. So these pagan polytheistic sailors, who, by the way, are much more religiously tolerant than Jonah is at this point, they're willing to call on his God, uh, turn to Jonah and they say, all right, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. It appears that you're the one who knows what is causing this. They don't even suspect him at first. They just say, tell us why this is happening. What's your occupation? Or what's your mission is another way to say it. Where do you come from? What's your country? What people are you? And he responds to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. So they ask him, who are you and what's your mission? Because, especially in this time period, who you are and 
whose you are, who you belong to, which God you belong to, are pretty much indistinguishable. Every geographical area, every city that was worth anything, every trade, every profession had its own deities, had its own gods that watched over that place or that profession or those people. So to ask of, of Jonah, what's your occupation? Where do you come from? Is the same as asking him, okay, what God do you serve? What do we need to do to appease him? And Jonah says, I'm a Hebrew. One commentator writes that because Jonah responds first with his ethnicity and then with his religious commitments, we can reasonably infer that for Jonah, his nationality was most fundamental to his identity, not his religion. In seminary, uh, I had a close friend who was telling me about a time in high school that he had gone on a mission trip where it, it was a collection of people from all around the world all coming to this one uh, country to do some particular work. And the, you know, it's 30 people in a room. None of them have ever met each other before. The very first day, it's a go around the circle, tell us your name, tell us where you're from thing. And, you know, the first person is, uh, I'm so-and-so, I'm from Spain, and oh, I'm so-and-so, I'm from London, uh, I'm so-and-so, I'm, I'm from uh, wherever, Romania, I'm so-and-so, I'm from the U.S., I'm from the U.S., I'm from the U.S., and then my buddy goes, I'm Austin, I'm from Texas. <laughs> Never occurred to him Texas is in the United States, right? But in Texas, you're a Texan, and Texan is more fundamental than American. I could tell people, I'm Joey, I'm from Indiana, and they say, what? <laughs> there are stratas, there are levels of our, uh, sort of the names that we give to ourselves that, that come in at different levels of our, our identity. Some are more fundamental than others. For Jonah, his national identity, I'm a Hebrew, was most fundamental. Not who he belonged to, I fear the Lord, the God, the maker of heaven and the seas and the dry land, but I'm, I'm an Israelite. I'm a Hebrew, that's who I am. When it comes down to the, the bare, most fundamental part of your identity, what would you say yours is. If you could only define yourself by one thing, by one name, by one association, what would it be? See, it's the shallowness of Jonah's self-identity in God it's the rootedness of his identity in his national origin rather than his religious origin that allows him to take, the, to, to, so when the word of God is in opposition to national interests, he privileges national interests. The word of God says, go, go to your enemies, preach to them. The national interest says, don't ever give any quarter to our enemies, and he goes with the national interests. Because being a Hebrew is more fundamental than being a fear of God, a child of Yahweh. One, uh, one commentator wrote uh, that it's shallow Christian identities like this that explain why professing Christians can be racists and greedy materialists. Addicted to beauty and pleasure or filled with anxiety and prone to overwork. 
all this comes because it's not Christ's love, but the world's power and approval and comfort and control that are the real roots of our self-identity. When they ask Jonah, whose are you? Who do you belong to? He says where he belongs and only then says who he belongs to. And even then, it's ironic. He says, and I, I fear the Lord God of Israel, the Lord God who made the heavens and the seas and the dry land. And we should read the word fear ironically. Fear, when it's used of fear of the Lord, usually connotes some sort of reverence, some sort of worshipful obedience. And he says, I am fleeing from the God of Israel because that's the God that I fear. It's like, yeah, a lot of fear that you're showing right now, a lot of reverence, a lot of worshipful obedience that you're showing right now as you're running away. But the, the sailors react almost exactly oppositely. Verse 10, then the men were exceedingly afraid, greatly afraid. Literally, they feared a great fear. They were greatly afraid because Jonah had already told them he's running away from his tribal deity, and they're realizing this God that you have offended is apparently also not just the maker of heaven, but the seas, and can reach out to the seas themselves and cause this storm to come upon us. They say, what are we supposed to do? Verse 11, what? Okay, if you're the one who's causing this, what do we do to you? that the seas may quiet down for us because the sea is growing more and more tempestuous. It's walking and stomping, it says. The sea is storming about them even more violently. So Jonah gives them an out. He says, pick him up. Hurl him, there's that word again, hurl him into the sea. Maybe that will appease the wrath of God. But they won't do it. They're kind of stuck in a, in a dilemma, actually. On the one hand, if they don't throw Jonah in, the storm will certainly swamp them and they'll all die. On the other hand, if they do throw Jonah in, a prophet of the Most High God, well, then God may take vengeance on them and swamp them. So they're stuck. Instead, they dig their oars in to the water. They row hard to get back to dry land, which is ironic because he's the God of heaven, sea, and dry land. If he can send a storm on the sea, surely he can send a storm on on the rock as well, or an earthquake, or whatever, but they can't, for the sea continued to grow more and more, stomping and storming after them even more. Now, when Jonah says, throw me in, hurl me in, we, we need to ask the question, is he, is he repenting and saying, I deserve to die for my sin, throw me in? Or is he submitting to God or actually, is he, is he repenting and submitting, or is he, he sort of defying and saying, I, I'm, there's no way I'm going to Nineveh, I'd rather die, throw me in. So on the one hand, he could be repenting and saying, I deserve to die for this, throw me in. On the other hand, I'd rather die than do what God says, throw me in. Which is it? I don't know. Jonah is human like us, so it's probably a mixture of the two. He certainly doesn't use any words that would make us think he's repenting. On the other hand, if he's simply suicidal, he could have taken care of that in Jerusalem without getting on a boat. So whatever's going on, it's a, it's a mix of emotion. It's a mix of, of all this stuff storming inside of himself. 
But at the very least, most commentators agree, he seems to be saying more out of pity than anything else. Look, I'm the guilty one here. You've tried prayers, you've tried stuff, you've, tried, you've cast lots, you've done all these things. Nothing that you've put between yourself and the wrath of God has, has absorbed the anger of God. And nothing will except me. So you're going to have to throw me in. Of course, he could have been magnanimous and said, I will throw myself in. But he isn't. He still wants, for some reason, he's not going to do it himself. They are going to have to be responsible for what they're about to do. So with nothing left to do, they call out to God. Verse 14, this is the peak of the whole chapter. They call out to the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. They call out to the Lord and say, Lord, don't let us perish for this man's life. Or don't let us die on account of this man and what he has done. And Lord, do not lay on us innocent blood. If he's innocent and you don't want us to do this to him, don't hold it against us. We're doing the best that we can here. Because you, O Lord, you are the Lord. You always do what pleases you. They offer a prayer. They say, don't kill us because of this man. Whether we let him live or let him die, we're going to have to throw him overboard. It's what he said. You do as you please and... Verse 15, they picked up Jonah and they hurled him into the sea. And immediately the sea ceased from its raging. The sea, it just stopped calm. And the next verse is interesting. Verse 16, then the men feared a great fear of the Lord and they sacrificed sacrifices to God, and they vowed vows. There's this repetition of emphasis. Now, foxhole conversions are notorious, I know. Uh, when you're in a difficulty, and you say, God, if you will get me out of this, I'll do whatever. What's significant here is that they, they don't turn to God until after the storm has passed. This isn't a foxhole conversion of, if you would just cease this raging will turn to you. Instead, it's the storm stops and they say, okay, Jonah's tribal deity really is the God of heaven and the seas and the dry land. This is the God who controls everything. Now, did they fully convert to a Jewish understanding of who God is? Maybe, maybe more likely they added God to their pantheon of deities. But either way, it was the work and the power of God in uh, the, the situation, the circumstances surrounding this prophet that accidentally led to the evangelism of an entire ship full of pagans. It's another irony of ironies. Jonah doesn't want to go lead pagans to God, and by his very rebellion, God leads pagans to himself. There is mercy for even the very worst missionaries, like Jonah. Jonah. And like us. You know, we're a lot, uh, a lot like Jonah, maybe a lot more like Jonah than we would like to admit. Jonah is chosen by God, saved by his grace, held in a privileged position in the community of Israel, a prophet, a, a messenger of God, and he's the one who's spiritually blind, self-absorbed, ignorant, bigoted, and foolish throughout the whole story. And God uses him 
anyway to bring these pagans to himself. There is mercy for even the very worst missionaries, like Jonah and like us. Even when we, like Jonah, are tempted to retreat from our relationship with God, to get busy somewhere else or to pull away and just sort of numb out, to run from our calling, to ignore the people around us who are crying out both in spiritual distress and physical distress. We're unwilling to work for the common good of the people around us. We're unwilling to tell them how they can have a relationship with God. They don't deserve a relationship with God. The best thing for God to do is just destroy his enemies, not save them. There's mercy for even... Missionaries like that, missionaries like us, who resist our identity as followers of Christ and the message, the calling that comes with that. See, the God in this story is a surprising God. He's not one-sided. He doesn't just bless the good and punish the bad. He runs after the bad. He uses the quote-unquote good guys to show them they're not as good as they think and that the bad guys are not as bad as they think. He shows mercy on the unrepentant. He shows grace to the unbelieving. He shows loving kindness to all. Even, even in sending a storm and threatening shipwreck, these are only and always his ways of grabbing Jonah's heart, grabbing the heart of the sailors and pulling them back to him mercifully drawing them back to the grace of God that's hidden deep within this storm. And we too get to see the grace of God inside of this story. The sailors, as they are wrestling with throwing Jonah overboard, notice pagans, but not really, they're not resorting to violence to solve their problems or to just getting rid of the other. Instead, uh, the, these pagans are looking at Jonah and are saying, will your God really be made happy by the sacrifice of one person? Is one person enough to absorb all of the wrath against sin that has come upon us in this storm? For us, of course, we can confidently say yes. Yes. Because no matter what storm we are facing, no matter what spiritual lethargies we indulge in, no matter how many times we walk away from God, we have a Savior. We have Jesus Christ, God himself, who willingly threw himself overboard on our behalf. We are all Jonah. We all deserve to be thrown over the side for our sin, to face the chaos at the bottom of the ocean for our sinfulness, for our disobedience, for the way that we run from God, for working against the grain of the universe and what God designed us to be and how he designed us to live. We deserve to be thrown overboard, but Jesus willingly stepped forward and said, look, nothing you have put between yourself and the wrath of God has absorbed it. Nothing can Accept God, the very one that you've offended. And Jesus said, I will come to earth, become a man, become a person, willingly step into, step overboard to absorb the storm and the destruction that all of your sin has caused on you and on everyone else so that you can sail on the calm seas that he designed you to live in. 
can, can the sacrifice of one person really, really absorb the entirety of the wrath of God, the just wrath of God against sin? It can. That person is Jesus, God himself, willingly throwing himself overboard for you and for me. Let's pray. God, there's mercy in this storm and the storms that we face as they point us back to you and back to our Savior Christ who has stepped forward and embraced us and absorbed the storm of sin that we have brought upon ourselves so that we can be with you. I pray that you would help us to be open to, to be changed by the goodness of your Son to us. That in his actions we find the resources that we need to step into the storms of other people's lives around us and bring the peace that comes only from Christ. Bring that peace long enough to say there is one who will take your storm. It's a high calling, Lord, that you have given to us, and I pray that you would overwhelm us with your goodness to us, that we would run in obedience to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.